Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Yahoo shares were down more than 6% after Yahoo disclosed after hours on Wednesday that cyber thieves in 2013 siphoned information from more than 1 billion Yahoo accounts, including users' email addresses, scrambled account passwords and dates of birth. In other words, all the information that they could use to hack into other areas and steal people's information and uh, and possibly more. I want to bring in Shira Ovide, uh, my fellow Gadfly columnist here at Bloomberg, uh, to give a sense of what Yahoo could have and should have done to prevent this from growing into such an extensive problem. Sure, could Yahoo have done anything to prevent I, this? Yeah, I mean, the, the issue is that some of this is ancient history, right? The the two now cyber attacks that Yahoo has disclosed in the last few months affected a, more than a billion accounts. And then the one they disclosed in September, a separate cyber attack, also from 2014, that affected more than 500 million accounts. So in some sense, this is a little bit old news. But it's very clear from the two hacks, this is a company that had a hard time, um, you know, securing information on its users. And in some, by some accounts, they did things that bolstered its business, that put its user information in jeopardy and ignored warnings from Yahoo's own security staff uh, when they did things that, that put the information at risk. This also uh, has created or highlights the creation of a market for this stolen data. I understand about the the price tag, about $300,000 for a complete set of this uh, data that includes personal information, as you said, social security numbers, passwords, 300000 Yeah, I mean, this is the scary thing, obviously, for all of us who live our lives online and have all this personal data online, is that, you know, there's a criminal enterprise that makes money from selling stolen digital information to other cyber thieves who can use it to kind of delve deeper into our digital and and physical lives. Ransomware, for example. Yeah. Lisa and I were just talking earlier this morning about an attack that occurred in the San Francisco public transit system at the end of November, where it was shut down because thieves managed to get, or hackers rather, managed to get into the electronic uh, technology system. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a, a cost of doing business online, right? Uh, is that cyber attacks and the consequences of cyber attacks have become sadly commonplace. So Verizon has or previously had agreed to purchase uh, Yahoo. Um, you wrote about how this cyber fail could cut $1 billion from the price tag that Verizon was willing to pay for Yahoo. Why would Verizon still want Yahoo, given how tainted its reputation has become? Yeah, that's a fair question. So uh, just to clarify, uh, Verizon is is agreed to buy Yahoo's core Internet businesses. The weird thing about Yahoo is that the majority of the company's market value is tied up in these stakes it owns in two independent Internet companies, Alibaba of China and Yahoo Japan. So the core bits of Yahoo, the parts of the company that we all know, um, are the ones that Verizon has agreed to buy. Verizon's logic here to do the deal hasn't really changed. Basically, what they want to do is create, um, do two things. One is to create a digital advertising company that can be a real 
kind of counterweight to Google and Facebook, which right now dominate all of the advertising online. More than half of all advertising, digital advertising in the U.S., the dollars are collected by those two companies. So Verizon wants to be a third player here. And Verizon also wants content, including all, you know, Yahoo Finance and uh, Yahoo Email and other Yahoo websites that, while they're not as popular as they used to be, still have hundreds of millions of users every month. So they think the combination of your Verizon cell phones and uh, programming, digital programming owned by Yahoo and AOL and other Verizon assets can be a real attraction to their to their mobile business model. Sure. Just quickly, are you afraid of uh, being hacked? Do you put any personal information online? I have become super paranoid about hacking. Yes, I, not to invite any thieves, but I am wary of clicking on any email. I try not to uh, start accounts with companies that I don't trust online. Our row is basically a bunker. We, yeah, <laughs> firewalls everywhere. Yeah, we're the row of paranoia. The row of paranoia. That's a strange ring to it, but I guess it's not going to be alone. Thank you very much, uh, Shira Overday, a Bloomberg uh, Gadfly, a technology columnist, uh, giving us the lowdown on Yahoo. U.S. housing market took a little bit of a breather this last month. Housing starts in the United States. Housing, uh, yes, new housing construction uh, declining more than a forecast. And here to tell us more about the housing industry is the chief executive of Realty Shares, Nav Othwal. Nav, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Pim and Lisa. Tell people what is Realty Shares just before we get into details. Sure. Realty Shares is an online marketplace for real estate investing and capital. We help individual high net worth investors uh, deploy capital into private real estate investments across the U.S. We've helped raise over $300 million of capital um, for these private deals and multifamily projects, single family projects. And on the other uh, end of our marketplace are underserved borrowers and companies that are looking for more efficient ways to raise capital or more cost-effective capital and can come to Realty Shares and get financing in as little as 10 days. So really much more efficient than a bank on the one hand in a more direct way to invest in real estate than a public REIT on the other hand. So you're the peer-to-peer -peer lender uh, that a lot of people think will take over uh, the future of lending. And I imagine that you're among those hoping for that. Uh, I'm wondering, from your perspective, have the applications that have been coming in, has it shown a deterioration in consumer credit worthiness of late? You, noticed in your, you mentioned in your notes that uh, the pace of foreclosures has ticked up a bit recently. Yeah, we've seen in some markets the pace of foreclosure tick up. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of home price appreciation um, over the last five, six years since the Great Recession. And I think that's resulted in some consumers over leveraging themselves in markets like Arizona, even in Denver. So there has been an uptick in, in um, foreclosures. But you're also seeing other counterbalancing uh, things in, in happening in the market. You're seeing the NAHB, which is the home builder um, uh, home builder index on on housing, actually be much higher than it was, you know, two three years ago, and hit an all time high in September. So yeah, you are seeing some deterioration, um, in, and you're also seeing a drop in just home buyer applications because of rising interest rates. So there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening. Well, I want to pick up on that really quickly. I mean, do you think that the recent rise in uh, mortgage rates is going to substantially slow the market and potentially uh, put a hole in valuations? I think the rise in interest rates is definitely going to reduce the uh, uh, number of applications that uh, folks are filing for refinances and new home purchases. We already saw a week-over-week 
uh, decline of five and a half percent for refinances and three percent for new uh, uh, new home purchases. Um, so definitely, it's gonna uh, it's gonna impact um, home buyer activity. But I think the bigger impact is home prices um, and just supply. There's a lot of supply constraint out there for new home purchases. So despite rising in, in interest rates, I think those other factors are going to be a bigger impact on the on the home buying activity. Is that one of the reasons why you have raised money to do pre-funded deals? In other words, you're putting your own balance sheet to work? Yeah, well, we we really serve the uh, non-owner-occupied borrowers. So we serve investment borrowers. We serve folks that are buying real estate not to live in it, but to for an investment purpose. And that part of the market's very underserved by banks and private equity. So we're really focused on that part of the market. But yes, a part, portion of the deals we do, we pre-fund on our own balance sheet, and then we'll then syndicate them out on the marketplace to high net worth investors that want to participate. We also have large institutions using the platform. Uh, you know, coming out of the Great Recession, generating yield has been very, very difficult. You have hedge funds looking to, you know, return their investors uh, mid-teen returns, and they can't do that in the bond market. So we do have a wide variety of investors trying to access an underserved part of the real estate capital markets. It's pretty exciting. Um, as, as a fintech company right now, um, I know that some of the more uh, the larger, more established fintech companies, peer-to-peer lenders, have run into a little bit of a, a pause in in their growth trajectory. What have you experienced when it comes to fundraising and, and sort of people's uh, skepticism around peer-to-peer or acceptance of it? There's a tremendous amount of skepticism, <laughs> and I think that's healthy in any new industry. Uh, I was at a conference with you uh, with UBS. Uh, the uh, yesterday actually, and there was uh, half the room was very bullish on the market, and that was the you know the maybe the younger population. That's where you and were then, hanging out. You were yeah, like, hey, was, guys, how's it going? But I like hanging around with the skeptics because they bring a tremendous amount of really good information because they've been there, they've done that, they've been in the market for a while, and you know it's healthy to be skeptical of a new industry and technology. Um, so it's really good to listen to the folks that are skeptical and why they're skeptical. Obviously, I'm very bullish. I wouldn't be running the company, um, but there's a, a very large amount of skepticism still in this industry. And we're just, I think education is the best way to deal with it. What's the specific uh, skepticism about? Well, I think, you know, people are think they, they equate this to, oh, this is going to lead to the next great recession. It's like the savings and loan industry. So there's so many analogies that are being used to describe peer-to-peer lending. But I think the biggest thing uh, that they say is, you know, banks are they they are they they already have this established base of customers that's going to be really hard for these lenders to compete for. The largest spend item for like a lending club is acquiring customers, right? And and banks already have these customers and they could at any point in time enter the market and take market share away from these companies. But what they don't realize is these tech companies are doing business in a much more cost-effective way. So they can offer cheaper credit to otherwise capable borrowers with high FICOs because they have lower operating costs. So I think that's the answer I typically give is just there. there is a place for these lenders. And I think the smart banks um, are finding a way to work with them rather than to say, you're just going to go away in three to five years. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. Nav Athwal, founder and chief executive officer of Realty Shares, which is based in San Francisco. Uh, really, really great. Thank you so much. This is a conversation I've been waiting to have. I want to bring in Constance Hunter, chief economist at KPMG. Uh, I'm particularly interested in China. The bond market's been selling off. The the People's Bank of China has been pumping billions of dollars into the financial system in the past few days in order to bolster it uh, as the currency continues to decline 
after the Fed rate hike. Constance, can you explain why the People's Bank of China have found it necessary to pump so much money into the economy in the immediate aftermath of, uh, of the Fed rate hike? Well, the Chinese currency, the renminbi, is still uh, largely pegged to the dollar. I mean, of course, they'll say it's it's a basket of currencies, but the U.S. dollar makes up a far larger portion of the basket than any other currency. I mean, it's about 80 percent of the basket. So we're looking at a situation where their policy is basically pegged to the U.S. policy. And if the Fed hikes rates um, and they sterilize that change, then they're basically experiencing a rate hike. And what they're saying is we're not quite ready for a rate hike just yet. So we're going to increase money supply. Constance, I wonder if you could tell us what you believe that will have uh, an effect on policy in China as much as it depends on uh, exports still to power its economy. Yeah. So, um, I mean, in so much as the, the Fed rate hike increases the value of the dollar um, and that the renminbi has also been falling, that would actually help Chinese exports, not just to the U.S., but really to, to other countries as well. Um, uh, so, so we do see we do see a, a somewhat neutral to positive impact from from the weaker renminbi, uh, but but of course there's so many things happening right now within the global economy, um, and of course within the within the, within the political economy. So when you think about um, some of the potential tax law changes here in the U.S., as well as as Trump's suggestion that that he would uh, slap tariffs on China if necessary if negotiations didn't yield better access for U.S. companies then we really have um, a lot more going on than just the currency situation. You know, Constance, the idea that China is burning through its foreign currency reserves, we saw the data showing that they've sold a good proportion of their treasuries. Their treasury holdings are now down to the lowest since uh, in more than six years, basically in order to fortify, to, to have money to fortify their financial system. Are we looking at a, at a potentially riskier situation heading into 2017? And, and is the potential for some sort of disorderly unwind of, of China's boom in the in the first half of next year? So I think people have been worried about this for, for years, really, that the unruly, the, the hard landing versus the soft landing, the unruly unwind. Um, and so um, that isn't to say that it couldn't happen next year, but this has been sort of a lingering worry if you were out there looking for things to be nervous about within the, within the global economy. One thing that I, that I will say that, that I've heard anecdotally is a really big pickup in um, the amount of money that Chinese are really willing to try to get out of the country. So uh, the way it works is, is there's a limit on how much each individual can, can take out of the country. And so there effectively are, are what I would call money mules that the people hire uh, to, to take out their money. And if, if, the, if it comes back to them in Hong Kong, then great. But people recognize that that's risky and the money could get stolen. But, but when I talk to wealthy Chinese, they are willing to take that risk because they want to continue to get money out of the country. And that is never really a very good sign that there is faith in the, in the regime that's in power. So it's interesting to me that while Xi Jinping has, has consolidated and increased his power, um, you see this phenomenon from private citizens. Where is much of that money going? Is it being invested in places like Australia and the United States or mm -hmm. in, in real estate? In real estate, it's being, it's being, it's being left in, in cash in some cases, but real estate is a very, very popular investment, and in Canada as well.
in Canadian real estate. So so going forward, what are you watching? What measures are you watching to figure out whether China is managing their uh, slowdown well or poorly? Well, it's not so it's not so easy. Um, it, so, for example, if, if I look at what I did, what I looked at in the run up to the to the U.S. crisis and and the um, and the bubble bursting here, we had a lot of great data that the Fed collects. Things like mortgage equity withdrawal uh, statistics, which really went through the roof um, in the run up to the crisis here. Um, things like the the rate of change of of leverage. So we have some of that. We can see that that corporate. Um, Borrowing is still continuing at very significantly high rates. Uh, we can see that that renminbi loans are still increasing. So we we have some data, but there's also a lot of off balance sheet um, loans that are being created, which is more difficult to track. One of the things that I I think is interesting with China, if you look at just something simple like their industrial production statistics, we used to see double digit industrial production statistics and and think that that was normal because China was playing catch up. And now we look at the annual, the year-over-year industrial production, and it's running at about six percent, and it has been for the last six months. So uh, this is this is definitely puts them in a different gear. So whether or not they get that six point seven percent growth next year really depends upon how stable the economy is. And and so things like industrial production are, are interesting to look at. If we see that falling off, it's going to be a, a flag, a red flag that the, the the economy is slowing more than they intend. Constance, uh, from a, the perspective of a U.S. investor, what assets? are most vulnerable to a China slowdown? Mm, that is an excellent question. And and you mentioned something earlier, which I think people worry about, but it perhaps is an over, over uh, or unfounded fear, and that is their U.S. Treasury holdings. So you, you, you noted a really important fact, which is that the Treasury holdings are the lowest they've been in six years. So this idea that we're going to have a surge up in interest rates when China um, withdraws their support of U.S. Treasuries, well, that may have already happened, and that could be a big contributing factor to the rise in yields we've seen since September and the 100 basis points we've seen since the election. Uh, but in terms of other assets, obviously real estate is is a big one. So if if the Chinese if if you really have um, a, a crash in China's economy, what happens then is that value gets destroyed. So if you have a bubble that's been fueled by debt, when that comes home to roost and the debt is no longer good, then there really is literally a, dis- a destruction of cash, a destruction of values. So there would be less money to invest in things like real estate and other assets. Um, those other other assets like art, wine, um, I would see softness in those those markets as well. And then in terms of forecasting. Um, where the softness comes within the equity market, that, that is across the board. I mean, it, w- it, would, it would depend on, on individual stocks and, and how much Chinese investment there is in them. Thanks very much. Uh, Constance Hunter is the chief economist at KPMG. This is one of the questions that I have been wondering. You know, President-elect Donald Trump has taken to Twitter uh, with many different announcements of a variety of 
topics. Um, the ones having to do with business, though, particularly targeting companies such as uh, Boeing, um, have had pretty substantial market uh, effects. I want to bring in Rob Triconelli, senior legal editor for Bloomberg BNA, and what the potential consequences of that could be. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. So, uh, is this something? Is President-elect Trump's Twitter activity with respect to corporate America uh, a potential? I don't know, point of investigation for the SEC? Uh, yeah, well, thanks for having me first. I think um, the, the, there's politics involved, too, right? Because if the SEC uh, would investigate this, um, you have to bear in mind that the SEC chairman is someone that Donald Trump would have appointed. And you know, so there is that to consider. But um, there's, there's really a lot here. Uh, he, Trump has said he's sold all his stocks. So maybe he's, you know, there's nothing for him personally, but maybe you would look to what his, if his, you know, some of his inner circle are trading on what they know he's about to tweet. But I mean, you, you can look at this a, a lot of different ways, but from the SEC angle, um, it, they are interested in, you know, if, if someone has a duty to keep information confidential and not trade on it and they breach that duty, the SEC is interested in investigating that. Rob, if these tweets and these messages that are made public were not being made public by either the president-elect or a top government official, what would be the SEC's stance on something that is moving markets? If somebody tweets something or says something in public and it changes the value of a stock or, or changes the direction of the market, what would the SEC say? Well, you would make an analogy to a company here, for example. So there are SEC regulations for public companies uh, when they introduce new information about what's going on with their business that they kind of they have to make that information public and kind of present it in a fair way for for anyone to trade on it. And there are you know there are procedures regulating that for companies, and you also have procedures uh, regulating it for the government too. I mean, Fed releases, SEC enforcement actions, Bureau of Labor Statistics data, they all have to be presented in a way that kind of everyone has access to it all at the same time. And so if you start having these market-moving opinions behind closed doors, but people know about it, um, that, that can be problematic too. Is there any precedent for this type of specific corporate uh, discussions by a president-elect or a standing president? I mean, has there ever been a president that has specifically gone after companies uh, publicly about certain contracts and uh, and policies and jobs? Uh, I mean, has this is there any is there any historical precedent whatsoever? Uh, not recently. I mean, you would have to go back to, um, you know, maybe like President Johnson would would uh, would speak about, you know, kind of a more, you know, industry more generally or something like that. But it's it's kind of unheard of in recent time, in recent memory. And it's even if it if this were common practice, you know, a long time ago, you know, going after trusts or or something like that, you're dealing with a very different universe now, just with all this technology that allows you know, trading immediately and, and this kind of market moving information. And so um, we're, this is new in recent memory. And it's, it is uncharted territory in the sense that there's just so many technological and financial um, consequences that can that can come from it. You know, it seems like uh, in general, regulators right now want to take the least political uh, action as possible. We're seeing this in a lot of different fronts. Um, that's at least my impression that there just sort of is uh, a desire to sort of 
of uh, maintain calm and, and maintain a sense of an orderly transition uh, to the next presidential administration. Uh, am I correct in that sort of sense, or, or are there signs that that people are embracing sort of a politicization, uh, politicalization of uh, of the regulatory posts? I think what you're what you're going to see is um, your intuition is right that. Um, Regulatory, a lot of regulatory enforcers don't like to wade into political um, issues, and courts kind of don't either. Uh, but we're seeing us. I would say one of the first maybe cracks in that that we're seeing is this week. You had the you know the Office of Government Ethics coming out and saying that well, there, there's this law called the Stock Act that prohibits. Um, federal employees from trading on political intelligence, on uh, information they get in the course of their duties. And this letter is out saying that, from from the office, saying that, uh, you know, uh, Trump needs to divest or put everything in a blind trust. Right. And, uh, and it, you know, th- that could foreshadow more of a regulatory appetite to, to examine these conflicts of interest. Rob Tricanelli, thank you so much. Uh, Senior legal editor, Bloomberg BNA, giving us more details about President-elect Donald Trump and the future of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at... Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.